Do you know what anti-racism leadership is? And if a school was practicing anti-racism, do you know what it might look, sound, or feel like? If you're curious about any of these questions, then you are in the right place. Hi, I'm Dr. Terrence L. Green. I'm a tenure professor, and I've helped to prepare hundreds of racially just and anti-racist school leaders, and I want to help you. That's why I created this podcast to provide you and your team with real-world insights and practices that work so that you can collectively build racially just schools. In today's episode, I have the honor of speaking with Dr. Mark Gooden. Dr. Gooden is a professor at Teachers College, Columbia University, and holds the Christian Johnson Endeavor Professorship of Educational Leadership. He is a national and international expert on anti-racism leadership, culturally responsive school leadership, and legal issues in education. Professor Gooden is also a former middle school math teacher, which he did for several years. As well, he is one of the co-authors of the best-selling book, Five Practices for Equity-Focused School Leadership, that was published by ASCD, a great book. I definitely recommend that you check it out. Dr. Gooden is known as a leader among leaders, and he is one of the major forces that have helped shape district and school leadership preparation to focus on anti-racism leadership. He is a close friend. He's a brother. He's a colleague. and I'm excited to have him on the podcast today. During our conversation, we discuss what anti-racism leadership is, what anti-racism leaders actually do in their schools and districts. We also talked about the importance of racial autobiographies as a tool for systemic inquiry and how anti-racist leaders might respond in this current anti-critical race theory environment and so, so much more. And if you're ready to get into today's episode, we will in one second. But first, I have a special announcer that's going to get us started. Let's get this party started. Welcome to the Racial Jessica's podcast with your host, Dr. Terrence Elgrade. He's my daddy, and he's the best ever. Let's go. You're listening to the Racially Just Schools podcast, the show that provides resources to help you and your team build racially just schools. Now, here's your host, Dr. Terrence L. Green. Welcome to the Racially Just Schools podcast. My name is Terrence L. Green, and I am your host, and I am excited that you are back or that you're here for today's episode. Now, I'm going to let you know off rip, today's episode is going to be off the chain because I have my brother from another mother, the one and only Dr. Mark Anthony Gooden in the building. Welcome to the Racially Just Schools podcast, Dr. Gooden. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Green. Uh, I'm super excited to be on here with you. And, and as you know, I'm a huge fan of your work. And so I could not wait to be on uh, the podcast to just get a taste of this exciting project that you're engaged in. So, so thank you for having me. Oh, man, my brother, the pleasure is all mine. I'm super excited that you're here with us today. I, I want to um, hop right in and talk uh, about anti-racist leadership. And I'm super excited to talk to you about it particularly given your your long history of practicing it, of writing about it, researching, helping prepare district leaders and school leaders and teacher leaders to be anti-racist school leaders. And, you know, we know that anti-racist school leadership has a very rich history. I think in 2020, it kind of hit the mainstream and became more popularized. But I think one of the, the things we have to guard against and be cautious is that when things that are intended to be uh, very transformative hits, kind of like the mainstream, it can be co-opted, right? So uh, 
and so it can start to mean everything and nothing all at the same time. And people just say anti-racist this, and it really doesn't have that fervor and that 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 potency and power to really transform and make something new in terms of education. But I'm curious from you, given your experience um, with anti-racist leadership, how do you come to understand and make meaning of what anti-racist leadership actually is? Oh, man. Yes, yes. Great question. And I, I love the way you frame that. It's, it, you, you're exactly right. Um, so, so for me, anti-racist leadership really builds from what I've just described. It's, it's this idea that if, if there is a system of race, uh, racism in this country, and if there's a system of racism that really oppresses people and denies people of their full rights as citizens, their full access to the democracy, uh, to all the things that they are entitled to, you know, their God given rights, you know, and rights, if you, if you will, uh, then there, there has to be a force out there, an anti-racist force that pushes against that, right? If there are these structures that oppress people, then there are anti-racist structures, uh, anti-racist approaches, if I should say that, anti-racist leaders and anti-racist leadership that should be working to dismantle those structures, right? That, that be working to dismantle those structures that really not only have brought about inequity, have perpetuated it, but in many ways, had, uh, uh, points where inequity has originated. So when we think about the, con- the the concept of racism in this country. Uh, you know, people like to say, "Well, yeah, it's tied to capitalism. Yeah, it's tied to slavery in this country. And yeah, all of those things are true. It's tied to oppressing people economically, but it's continued for a long period of time with some of those same types of features, right? Uninterrogated." So anti-racist leadership interrogates those structures. It seeks to dismantle those structures and disrupt that kind of thinking, that type of behavior, those kinds of practices. And in many ways, man, it upsets a lot of people who are not ready to engage in that kind of conversation and do that kind of work. Because that's the thing. Anti-racist leadership is has to be followed by action. And I know we'll get into this later, but if you look around and say, hey, I'm an anti-racist leadership and you haven't at least disrupted something. Maybe you haven't gotten to a point of dismantling aspects of the organization. But if you haven't even disrupted a colleague's thinking in some way recently, you know, maybe today. But if you just have not done that in some ways that are uncomfortable, that's the thing. You know, I I think now, you know, uh, there's some cool forms of anti-racism, right? (laughs) anti-racist leadership. You know, people are doing it in ways, I think. Uh, and there's a range, so I want to be clear. I'm, I don't want to blanket folks, but there are folks who are, who are definitely doing the work. There's no doubt. And I've, I've seen that and I'm excited about it. But I find that there are some people who are definitely doing some superficial things that you, you have just have to ask, ask yourself, am I doing this in ways to just, you know, get people engaged and have some conversations and get things talking, which is, could be a you know prerequisite. But if we're not moving toward things that we can point to that are disruptive, you you were not going to get to a point where we are dismantling anything, you know, um, likely. And and so we got to think about ways of certainly deconstructing those things that uh, have been built to oppress people. Um, but ultimately, ultimately, because in many cases we haven't seen it, we've got to be thinking about how do we go back and rebuild. Mm-hmm. 
No, no. Thank you for sharing that. Um, That's very useful. And I think that's powerful. You know, one of the things that I really appreciate is you talking about this idea of rebuilding. And, you know, I believe a a significant part of anti-racism work is about this rebuilding, this reconstruction, this reimagination. But the reality is that you can't rebuild with everyone. (laughs) I mean, because there are some people who want to maintain the same racial status quo. The other folks who just ain't dang about that life of building. And so you can't build with everyone. But one of the things I've experienced is school leaders and district leaders. They're trying to rebuild with everyone. And so you got folks who have and continue to experience systemic and structural racism. And folks who don't experience it. Right. And so when you try to build with everyone, at least who are not committed and deeply anchored in this work, it can create these very weird types of tensions in organizational dynamics that make it very difficult to to really do anti-racism work um, and a structural systemic in a deeply rooted level. And because the work starts to get undermined. And so I'm curious if you could speak a little bit about that dynamic and particularly how you know school and district leaders might think about navigating that um that interpersonal piece um that's trying to get to these structural shifts around anti-racism when you have these tensions showing up in the people who are coming together to do the rebuilding yes great question uh, sometimes we we fail to recognize how oppressive systems uh you know i don't have a better phrase for this they, they sometimes break people Right. And they break people down and we meet people and we sometimes expect them to be nice and cordial and broken. You know, you you try being broken or try being in a space where you don't get access to something that you're supposed you in your heart of hearts. You know, you're supposed to get access. And then you want me to show up and, and smile. And then at the end of the day, you may not get it, but we did want you to be just courteous. And it doesn't always come out like that. And I have to remind folks that. In tough situations, and, and, you know, I, like a lot of other people, have had some tough childhoods, it's, it's sometimes hard to be just cordial, <laughs> you know? It just, and, and why is it always the thing? I got to be cordial and <laughs> this kind of thing. So, anyway, I don't know why I'm on that today. But, but, but seriously, I, I, I have been in spaces where um, leaders understand that sometimes when people show up, especially in spaces that they have long memories that have been oppressive to me, may not have had the good experiences I had in school, and then you want me to also be nice? Maybe there, and, and, and I recognize even in my schooling experience, there were folks who, who, who could not catch a break, could not catch a break. I remember high school, uh, there was a brother who was a friend of mine and, and you know, we, we both would tease about getting into trouble. But, he, you know, he he was somebody who didn't take the uh, wasn't on the college prep track, but he was brilliant. He was brilliant, Dr. Green. I mean, he's one of those people who could see and express systems and I still be trying to catch up. We used to listen to Public Enemy together. We call we call each other S1Ws. Some of your listeners might know what that is. Y'all should look that up. But, you know. Um, we had a squirmish in our school one time, and it was definitely correlated with race. And this brother, uh, David, I just used his first name, was telling me, here's what's happening, and here's what's going to happen tomorrow. And I was thinking, like, yeah, man, you know, you're right. And I was still trying to catch up with it. And, and I won't go into what, what happened, but basically there was a situation where there was a so-called group of brothers they, they had turned as gang members 
uh, got into uh, it, well, one one. There was a, a a white student got into a skirmish with one of those guys, and he he didn't know <laughs> that these brothers they called them the Rattlers. And before you know it, he was in a fight with like four or five guys. And so the next day, we had police presence. We had all this stuff happening, and and so I, I'm just saying, my brother David uh, would express a lot of those kinds of things in class. But they made sure that he stayed on the suspension roster. If there was a, he, he couldn't stay in school because he made people uncomfortable because of his brilliance. And actually, he wasn't in the class. He just had a, he had that kind of militant mind around what's happening here and what we should be doing. And he would raise certain questions and people would be like, oh, that's, <laughs> you know, he just didn't fit. Right. And so so that was very different from me, who was on the college prep track, taking calculus and taking geometry in ninth grade. And so I found that for a lot of folks, for me as a student, I would have been much more palatable, but I should not have been accorded any additional privileges than David. But then that's the way people thought about it, because for them, for a lot of them, I think, and I'm speaking predominantly, we have, you know, we still have a larger number of teachers who were not comfortable with black students. Primarily it was white, white teachers in, during that time. They would not have been comfortable with David, where some of them would have been comfortable with me. I mean, you, as, as you talk about, you know, your friend David, I mean, to me, that is there is the, the experience and the knowledge that David has. That is a resource that could radically transform a school district. You're talking about making it anti-racist. You're talking about making it, making it equitable. But those experiences, David is he ain't in school. They got him on a suspension roster. Right. They're not trying to hear anything he's saying. And so there's something powerful there. But you also brought up this this idea of anti-racism, you know, working to dismantle structures. But there are people who understand the history of it, of it. And so you got me thinking about the ways in which memories and um, imagination collide in this work. Right. Like we can be imaginative to reimagine a, a system that is anti-racist. But we also have to understand that there are people that have the memories of the ways in which these systems have worked to break us, our, our, our entire people down. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we got to show up and you've got to do something like you said. And so you, you reminded me of a piece you wrote in Ed Week, which I highly recommend folks, if you haven't um, had an opportunity to check out that piece by Dr. Gooden, he wrote it in 2020 and it's literally called what anti-racist principles must do not might do, not should do. And the implications of there, like you have to literally do something, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. But I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about if a school, if a district, if a teacher was engaged in anti-racist leadership, what are some of the things you would expect, you know, them to be doing? What would you, what would you feel? What would you experience? What would be happening in that context where anti-racist leadership is alive and well and going to dismantle those structures of racism that you mentioned earlier. Oh yes, 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 yes. Brilliant question. Um, moving into that space, uh, or just dropping it right into like that. Uh, what, what are they doing, column? Uh, I think I think you would have uh, if you even had policies that were there that had disparate impact on kids, especially. Uh, kids of color, you know, minoritized kids, I would think that there would be some leaders looking at how we could change those policies or they would have already done it. Right. They would have said, OK, this policy has this uh, disparate impact effect. We're going to change it. 
right? Or we notice that even though it looks neutral on its face, man, every time we keep finding this, we find that more of our black kids are being something, something's wrong here, right? It's 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 part of the policy, but then you would also have teachers asking themselves, you know, through organized inquiry, do I have any disparities in my referrals to the office by race? Oh my God, I gotta look at it by race. And not coming back saying, you're calling me a racist. Because because that that's different. That they're moving it away from me and saying, I'm looking at my practice and seeing if it has impact on the lives of these kids, like David, who need to be here. Or am I just doing something that's more comfortable for me? Remember, David wasn't an easy student to teach. But if you could teach David, and if you can show the rest of the class you're teaching David, people are gonna be like, You are a real teacher. You're serious, yeah. right? And so I think that's the thing that we, we sometimes forget. If you want to be the best educator you can be, teach the Davids of the world, right? And, and remember, if you teach David, you got the Mark Goodens looking, you got the other David 2.0s looking, you got everybody looking like, oh, okay. I like what you did there. You didn't, you didn't kick him out because in the last class, they just kicked him out. You're actually having a conversation with them. So David would be in class. In fact, if the school even had a suspension center, it would be in school suspension if they had it. They'd be thinking about how to get rid of that. They'd be like talking about how do we keep these kids in community? Because remember I told you I was in a household one time where there was domestic violence. And yeah, I did some silly stuff. And my teachers at a couple of points. They easily could have gotten rid of me, Dr. Green. They could they could have got me suspended. But I somehow in my heart of hearts know that they knew that there were some things going on and that Gooden, Mark, needed to be a part of the community. The best place for this child to be is in school. And they could tell anybody could see from a mile away, I like being in school, man. Like I said, my friends were there. Like even the, I mean, I, I like doing the work because I thought you know, our kids, I don't I ain't put it together. I, think, I thought if I didn't do my work, they may make me leave. So I didn't just do my work. I excelled at doing my work because, you know, I got affirmed by my friends. I got affirmed by my teachers. It was a good place for me. Even when I made mistakes, it was still a good place for me because that, that was my community. In many ways, that was all I knew in terms of my family, right? So so I'm just saying back school, Terrence, it, it will recognize that we're going to keep our kids here, man. When they misbehave, we want to keep them here. Well, yeah, we want to keep them here. We want to show them that we love them. I'm going to separate the bad behavior from the individual. And I'm going to tell you what you did, and I'm going to hold you to the carpet. Now let's go eat lunch. <laughs> let's sit down and break bread. Because like, for a lot of people, they can't hold those two. But that's what that's what families do. I mean, I love my 15-year-old daughter. And people hear me say this. Uh, she's 15 and full of fire. And she, you know, wake up some morning, she just is not a pleasant kid to be around. But I'm not going to kick out the house. You know, sometimes I'm even going to drive her to school. And it's not going to be a lot of word share. But at the end, I'm going to say, I love you. She's going to, uh-huh. That's, that's what she said this morning. Just tomorrow will be better. But she is a part of the family. And she knows that. Right? She takes comfort in knowing that no matter, no matter how I misbehave, this is my, these are my peeps. At mom and dad gonna be my biggest cheerleaders, even when I mess up. And I think again, that's those are some of the simple things that we can show kids, man. And the school would be doing that. And if their policies are not doing that, 
And if, if the academic access, which is another thing, we're not challenging kids in that way. If they're not getting stuff that affirms who they are and shows them that they are part of what we created in America and beyond, we're not doing our job, man. Uh, and and we're, we're, we're building a space that's not welcoming and affirming. At the very least, building community means it's a space that welcomes everybody, right? And it affirms who they are. That's what I remember the affirming part, man. I mean, my teachers, like I said, I told my wife, it was a running joke by the time I got to high school. Like I did my middle school teachers call my high school teachers. Because when I would misbehave, they were like, my boy, you got a lot of potential. And that's it. I knew that was a but, but, I, but they didn't have to say the but. You got a lot of potential. Get it together. But if you don't get it together, you're going to mess up. Right? But I'm going to be here to make sure you get it together. And I think that's the thing that really impressed me so much. You know, that's you said, that, that's powerful. You, one of the things you said that I was just very profound is you said the schools will be trying to figure out how do we keep them in community, which semant- which semantically may seem subtle, but to me it's profound because there's a difference in approaching the work and trying to keep students in community versus trying to keep them in class, right? Because the thing like, how do yeah. we just keep them in class? Oh, we give them a, a worksheet. How do we do that? But is to me is is a shift to be like how do we keep them in community and you being part of that community right, right? and so the anti racist work thinking about how do we keep youth and children particularly black youth that have been marginalized by the system how do we stay in community is a powerful a powerful question to engage and one of the things you also mentioned there was this idea of around organized inquiry. And that is a powerful inquiry quest to go on, right? Like, how do we stay in community mm-hmm. in this space? And as I think about this organized inquiry, one of the things you've, you know, always done in your work with school leaders and, and district leaders is you've had them be engaged in this organized inquiry, which you've called um, racial autobiographies, not just thinking about your life autobiographically, but understanding how the dynamics of race and racism begin to shape that. And I I'm, I'm, would love if you could talk a little more about this, this organized inquiry and the power of doing racial autobiographies, but not just at the individual level, right? Because when you say this organized inquiry, it makes me think as a leader, you're creating an atmosphere or a culture where inquiry and reflexivity and reflection on your own work and practices is a routine that is taken up in that school or district. But could you talk to, to us about you know, racial autobiographies and, and their power in helping leaders be critically reflective in their anti-racism work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you so much. I think uh, that for the for the framing of that. But it's it's very much like you say, this 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 exercise, which is really a rich exercise that that's frankly fraught with a lot of challenges for for many educators. Right. So we start thinking about, you know, uh, you know, our profession in terms of leaders and teachers, which I think something like what, 77 percent white teachers and 77 percent uh, white principals. Uh, we find that they're not the only ones, but in many, more cases than not in my work, I found that a lot of white educators have not had the space to really reflect on their, their racial journey. Right. Typical things that people have done this with their white students will hear is 
I, I hear I hear all the time. Dr. Good, I know I'm white, but I haven't had to think about that before. Now, I mean, what? so I'm white, so what? And then we say, okay, that's great. But what does that mean that you haven't had to think about this? And you're standing in front of people who had to think about it yesterday, today, this morning. And and based on that comment you just said, right? right? So helping folks understand that that intro into that organized inquiry is about me doing this process. There's going to be some deep reflection. There's going to be some reflexivity. There's going to be some discomfort. There's going to be all those things. And then sharing that in a community. What I learned over the years is you, even if you share it with one other person, if you can share one other person different from you, you're going to learn a lot. <laughs> you know, you're, going, you're going to get some stuff and you're going to be like, oh, wow. I, and you're going to expand that. You can expand that to sharing it with now three other people. You can keep expanding that. And so the way in which we, I've suggested people do it over the years now is share that in that whole space with leaders because it's going to build some, com- some, some spaces of commonality. It's going to build some spaces where there's going to be empathy. You know, you, you see what I mean? It's going to be, it's going to build community. It's going to show you how to be in community with somebody you, you thought were, were different from you. But it's also going to help you understand where you are in what's supposed to be a defunct racial hierarchy. It's going to have you unearth some things that you otherwise would not have seen it's going to make you understand a little bit more why you might have those disparities. Cause there's going to be some stuff operating in the back of your mind that you're acting upon, but you don't know it. And kids of color, minoritized kids are recognizing and seeing that, but they don't really have the power to be able to say to you. And sometimes they will. Sometimes they just say, you're racist. And you're like, oh. even that is going to be a way of you not you're responding in your own comfort and discomfort versus saying, that's an interesting point you just made there. You call me a racist. It hurt my feelings. But let, what does that mean? Why, why would you say that? We rarely do that. We have an emotional response. More, more white teachers and white leaders have been who have been honest with me said when they said that I had an emotional response because I, I attributed, and I talk about this in, in the uh, article, I attributed being called a racist with being a bad person. That's oversimplified, but again, it's there's some multiple aspects of how we really get to interrogate this racial hierarchy and find out how we may be doing things to oppress kids without recognizing. And it's not exclusive to white educators. We should know that. You know, you and I have seen research. We know that sometimes as black educators, some of us are carrying a lot of weight and some of us are feeling like we got to be tough on the on on on, on the the, the black kids, right? We got to be tougher on the Latinx kids. And we end up playing into that system until some of my students have come to, and you know, I've I had so many black men say, well, shoot, I didn't recognize that being an AP, man, I was like the police, <laughs> the black disciplinarian. <laughs> I didn't realize, you know, I, I, I've been in this AP position for years and they always send it. I don't want to be that, right? I had, I remember being working in Texas out of Latinx AP, after, we, after he did his, a Latinx uh, male principal said he recognized there were some disparities with one teacher, two teachers, and one of them, he went in and tried to have a conversation from an intellectual standpoint. Let's engage. Let me, I just noticed you you got more black and brown boys. And the first thing happens is tears roll down the face, and she says, are you calling me a racist? No, I'm trying to have a peer-to-peer inquiry with you to find out, can we, because it might indicate you need some support. But we've taken that out of this conversation because we made it 
so bad to talk about, uh, so bad to interrogate race. We we made it, you know, uh, for a time, for a period, it was bad to do anti-racist leadership. And once again, and I'm saying if folks are not taking people through this in ways that they do the racial autobiography and then map that onto the organization, the do part, you got to have the do part in there. Like not just not, not not just the do part I did it and I feel a certain way about it, but I did it and now I'm constantly asking questions about what I can do differently. I'm constantly looking at this system. Even if I don't have the best questions, I need to be developing a vision to see the inequities. Because that's that's what it is. These you gotta think about these inequities as being hidden from you and the racial autobiography being your first way to start to visibly see them because you can't really dismantle something you can't see. And many of us, um, I submit a, a large percentage of folks still, I mean, I, I, I'm still a little surprised when I go in districts even today and take people through some of these exercises and it's brand new. And I just ask, have y'all done? And some people will say, yeah, yeah, we did that, but we don't want doing a racial autobiography to become like, like what I found, like folks used to do when, when folks would say we did the, uh, you know, some of these assessments. I found out what my true colors were. I found out like my Myers-Briggs type in the kit. And I said, oh, okay, that's a favorite. I mean, I've used that, as you know, with leaders as well. But I always ask people, say, okay, you, you found that you're four-letter type. How does that impact your leadership? Well, it was, it, was, it was fun when we did the workshop. It was engaging that day. But what did you do with, do with it the next day? The next day after that, the next, well, you know what? I didn't do anything with it. We don't want the racial autobiography to, to, to really be something that folks do in a one session and they feel a certain way about it. Maybe they liked it. Maybe it was interesting. Maybe they didn't like it. But if they don't do it, if they're not seeing it, it changed anything after the fact. And, and, and it didn't do anything to move them into how they engage with people and build community and change. What was the point? Right. You can't do anti-racist leadership in kind of a one time event because these systems are stronger than that, man. They've been here, as you know, for years. And, and the system, the system will gladly allow you to do a one time. It'll help. It'll pay for it for you. It'll pay for it. Come bring them in. Do the one time thing. Feel good. Because tomorrow our access numbers look the same. Tomorrow, our suspension numbers Look the same. Our disproportionality is still the same. Or maybe there was a dent in it. But if that's the case, then you're just really, I hate to say it, you're just a cog in the wheel that happened to do a racial autobiography. This is this is good, man. I mean, one of the things you said in there, I think that is it's so profound that, that people have to really make that connection is after you do the racial autobiography one is something that you don't just do one time. Right. It should be a reoccurring practice. And that's one of the things, even when I talk about the equity audits, like at least annually, if not semi-annually, you should be and throughout the, the year conducting these micro audits, like you're doing it, not that you've done it or you did it in the past, mm-hmm. but you said something that was important there. Like as you do it or after you do it, you also now have to map that onto the organization. Right. So in other words, like, your auto racial autobiography. Now you need to be thinking about what does this mean about how we hire? What does it mean about how we do assessments? What does it mean about how we do professional learning communities? What does it mean about how we do instruction? What does it mean about how we do? We got suspension. We got in-suit Who's like it all of this now becomes like that filter mm-hmm. through which now you start to make sense of the system. Because you said earlier, 
that race was a system. Racism was a system, not just an individual or not a one-time act. And so I think a lot of folks may, you know, that's an opportunity for them to take it a step further by mapping it onto the organization. That's right. That's right. And, and, and if you, if you're honest about this work, um, and we'll, we'll probably get into this later. This is really, you'll find some of the principles of being an anti-racist leadership really are going to be ones that enhance you being a better leader, enhance your skills as a leader, right? Um, thinking about anti-racist leadership, even though it starts out with this, in many ways, with this racial autobiography and some deeper learning, right? Because you have to also do some reading and some learning. We remind our students it's not just this one event. Um, but you're going to become a better leader because you're going to recognize that some of the ways in which we have learned how the how to lead have been problematic and have been supportive of further oppressing folks within the organization. Right. For example, um, you know, we play around with this idea of you know, kind of this charismatic leader concept, which is we have to be mindful of, about what it means. Yeah, we can have a charismatic leader. To some extent, but we have to recognize the tensions. And I, I love the fact that getting engaged in the anti-racist work opens the space up for you being more c- comfortable, if you will, with the tensions around leadership. Right. And and so. Good leaders can can hold that tension and then move beyond that to say, this is good. This this is good for the organization. Conflict is necessary and natural. Right. I, I want to get more voices and that's not necessarily conflictual, but it feels that way to me, especially if I've been taught that I'm a charismatic and when I speak, everybody should. No, 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 no. You've got to listen to people. You got to, you got to think about the organization of your meetings. Like, like, are you the one still talking and, and you do the agenda and you pass it out there or, or have you made it space for people to share some things that you probably otherwise would want to hear or you don't have time for, or, you know, so all of those things, I think, help you recognize that structural piece in there. There's some structures that we just follow because sometimes they're convenient for me. (laughs) Sometimes they're easy for me as a leader and we just do it, man. We just do it. And, And I think we have to, we have to do things that are not comfortable and we have to expose the leadership in ways that are going to help the organization. Wow, that's very helpful. That is that is very helpful. I just got one last question before we transition. Um, and it, it kind of segues into what we've been talking about um, in terms of this current moment. You talked about the cases that are unfolding right here in Texas, um, these racist cases. And um, there has been a significant pushback on this work since from from the beginning um, but even more so from 2020, 2020, you know, folks was riled up. They were like, oh, we've been to do anti-racist work. And now it's about to be 2023. And um, a lot of that stuff has seemed to wane profoundly. And but there still is this backlash, this white lash of anything of equity. There's a policy I was just reading about here in, in Texas in higher ed. They're trying to, you know, kind of defund any DEI offices or any DEI work. And just, you know. So I'm curious, what might you say to school leaders, um, to district leaders, to teacher leaders, to folks who are working in schools um, who are committed to this work, but they find themselves in this 
deeply racist political backlash of anything that's anti-racism and equity, what might you offer them um, as they stay committed to this work within that context and climate? Yeah, yeah, that, that that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I, I would just say, even though there definitely is some, some difficulty around this, um, and, and, and it, it seems to be at the, at the point we're, we're in right now, a reminder to those teachers and those leaders that the, the phrase you need to take forward, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm recognizing, I'm, I'm admitting to some extent that people have a certain amount of energy. And I just think that the, the, the thing that people need to take forward is we're, we're doing good work, right? Uh, this is good leadership. This is how our leaders support kids who otherwise would not get access. And I think you need to build your argument around that. We're doing good teaching. This is how we teach about, and you know, uh, and, and by the way, there are, as you know, there are some conflicts in some of these laws and policies around, you know, you know, teach a particular set of leaders who are diverse. But I think teachers have always had to work in a space to teach the curriculum to some extent, but, you know, there's kind of this hidden curriculum around that those good teachers were still bringing in like the additional things because they knew their students, right? My, my, my teachers, yeah, they knew what the, what the Georgia State Curriculum Board or whatever they were saying at the time, but they knew me as a student. And every now and then, if they didn't have access to a particular type of black author, or they, they would show me something that they had done. Now, going back to my favorite math teacher, Mr. Webb, who really pulled me in so many ways interpersonally. But he did things like when I didn't make the basketball team, because, you know, I didn't realize you you had to actually know how to play basketball. I thought you just go out and it's like, you know, friends club. I'm like, no, no. But he said, you're going to be the statistician, good. You're going to travel with the team. I said, what is that? He said, you're going you're gonna to keep these numbers. and keep. So he made a different creative way. That, teachers can do that, right? Teachers who pointed to, like, other aspects of where you show up. I mean, I, I went through a program where I didn't learn a lot about black mathematicians, but when I talked to my kids, I wanted to tell them about Banneker. I at least can tell you about Banneker, right? And then I said, we can go beyond and say, let's talk about the Dogon in Africa, the astronomers. Who are the, you know, who, who really work with mathematics? And my kids hadn't heard about them. They said, shoot, I hadn't heard about them either growing up. But, but that, that additional made sense that made my students feel like they saw me. And again, as, as people came in and questioned what teachers were doing, teachers could say, oh, okay, we're, we're, we're teaching according to the curriculum. I don't have time to fight with you, foolish person. I'm teaching my kids because this is what I know how to do. And that's the thing, man. Leaders, policymakers, we got some of these folks, man, you know, they, they know nothing about education. They know politics. And I, that's what I say. You say, I don't know politics, but I know how to do good leadership. And good leadership is embracing all my teachers and making sure that they feel affirmed as they teach their kids. And that's not going to be easy. And I hope that's not an oversimplified answer. But you can't get into these deep debates with these folks about CRT, man. They don't argue logically on this stuff. They don't even know what it is. But they have political power. They have folks who support what they're doing and they can, they just can wear you down. I mean, they're, they're just, they're really just wearing down some school districts because they have these, you know, I don't have to go into that. These systems of folks calling and making all these requests. And I don't think educators have much time to do that kind of stuff, but I do know they have time to focus on their kids and advocate. And even if, you know, 
they're doing something. Give people the space to try to come in and question. Just say, this is good because it aligns with what we're supposed to be doing. And, and as I said, a lot of those have paradoxes around teaching diverse subject matter. That's what you're doing. Just say that. That's what I'm doing. Uh, and you're always going to have these people doing that kind of thing. And, and that doesn't, I mean, it's crazy. It really is. Um, but I, I, for educators, I just want to commend folks who are hanging in there and staying in. because folks know you as a leader of leaders. They know you as an amazing scholar, a former teacher, um, doing some powerful work. But as you think about your life, if you thought about it as a movie trailer, like who would be some of the people, some of the institutions, and even some of the experiences that kind of shape you into who you are today? Oh, man, man. Brilliant question. Thank you so much. So, so when I think about that, uh, you know, I, I have to go back to uh, to my mother, uh, who who I um, whom I think about as my first teacher. I mean, she is always uh, she's she's been there over the years as someone who uh, really taught me some of the early lessons, supportive of people, and also understanding how to give back. And when I think about places, uh, we lived a couple of places growing up, but the one that sticks out in my mind uh, as I'm learning now. But, from my hometown of all Benny, Georgia. I have to slow that down for folks. Uh, so we, I grew up in, in what was called um, the, the Mount Zion Gardens uh, projects at the time. But I think about that moving from there shortly, um, very close to that neighborhood was uh, my middle school, the neighborhood around Martin Luther King, uh, at the time it was called uh, 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 Martin Luther King Middle School. And the people around that, in that community sort of kind of watched out for me as I went to and fro uh, from school uh, there were there were uh, guys there that I played with, young ladies that I probably you know liked and, and, and played with as well. But I also had had relationships with people, kids in that neighborhood. Just really, what it was just reaffirming for me. And and I remember liking going to Martin Luther King Middle School. I, I liked most of the people there. It's just such a great community to be there, and the powerful people there. There it was a predominantly black staff, uh, black principal, black assistant principal. Uh, black teachers who, uh, frankly, I was I was quite afraid of a couple of them, like Miss Turner. I still I still shake when I think about Miss Turner, uh, but just a number of teachers who really pulled me aside and, and would remind me that I had such a huge amount of potential. And so they were a part of that community for me, uh, even as I grew up in a household that was uh, filled with some strife. Uh, as my mother went into um, a marriage that was, you know, really fraught with a lot of uh, challenges, especially around domestic violence and a number of other things. But my teachers sensed that and, and wrapped their arms around me. So, so that part of the community was there and I can go on and on, but moving from there to, to Albany high school, I found again, a number of black teachers who came to my aid, uh, particularly a woman named Miss Judy Thomas. I uh, can't forget Mr. Webb, who was a map, who both of those folks, were math teachers, one in middle school, one in high school. But moving on from there to to uh, college, going to a historically black university, Albany State University. And once again, having uh, people come into my path who really looked out for me and helped me understand a whole lot more about the world than I thought I knew. That is awesome. That is awesome. So before we end, where can people learn more about your work? Um, say there's a district or a school that they're like, look, we need some support in our anti-racist work. We need to reach out to Dr. Gooden to see if he can come help us and work and partner with you. Where can folks learn more about you and your work? Uh, absolutely. Um, you can you can definitely find me um, on Twitter, just uh, at symbol 
my last name, Gooden, G-O-O-D-E-N, uh, PhD. Um, have a website, uh, GoodenPhD.com. It's under construction. I <laughs> needed some work. Uh, but if you just did Teachers College, uh, Columbia or Columbia University, Gooden, you can find my uh, find my page there. You, you'll find my email address there as well. So again, if you just do Gooden, um, um, Columbia University, you can find me that way. We'd, we'd love to hear from people and engage with folks. So, uh, so yeah, that, that's the way. Well, awesome. We'll definitely link all of that into the show notes so folks can follow up with you. And man, I just want to say, you know, thank you from the bottom of my heart for, you know, taking time to not only come on the podcast, but just being a, a, an amazing friend over the years and a mentor and just a brother. And so I want to give you your flowers, man. I appreciate you. I love you, man. You are just an amazing human being. And I consider myself extremely blessed to be able to do life with you and to know you. So, man, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Green. Thanks for having me. And thanks for the love, man. Love you too. Love what you're doing. Always a a huge fan and uh, just can't wait to see what you do next. This is so exciting and it's always uh, wonderful to sit with you and learn a little bit. So I certainly am honored to be invited and uh, excited to continue to support everything you do and be in the sit in the space with you. So it's, it's been a true pleasure, my brother. Brother from another, as we say. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, thank you, Dr. Gooden. It's truly been a pleasure. And uh, y'all, we out. Peace. Well, that is it, folks. Thank you so much for the Racially Just Schools podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And I am so excited and really looking forward to our time together during future podcasts. What I need you to do is to please hit the subscribe button, share with a friend, and please leave a review. Love reviews. And if you want to hear more from me, you can head on over to www.raciallyjustschools.com. That is www.raciallyjustschools.com. When you join our community, I have a free video for you on three tips that will make your racial justice work better. And again, if you love the show, hit subscribe, rate it, and leave a review on iTunes. And until next time, peace.